I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles this morning and turn with me to um, the New Testament epistle, Colossians, enjoying the opportunity. We finished a two-year sermon series through the Gospel of John recently, and so I'm taking the opportunity on a few Sundays to, to, to get to do a little more of a systematic teaching, and last week um, we got to look at pride uh, through Second Chron- Chronicles 26, and pride comes before the fall. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to grab the podcast. Uh, this week, I'll, I'm excited to talk about forgiveness. We're in the tail end of, of in our midweek teaching series, uh, a 10-week um, series through marriage and singleness, and it's been a real joy. Um, part of my typical teaching of that content would include much of today's content from forgiveness, but I just I said, you know, I want to preach this as a sermon for us as a church uh, on a Sunday morning. So I'm excited to do that today. Uh, We must rightly understand and then practice forgiveness, especially as the church. That is a critical part of, of our lives, of our renewal, of our testimony of Christ. And so with that, I'm excited to see what God would have for us. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13, uh, if you're a note taker, we have uh, blank sermon note uh, papers on the, on the table on the way in the door. We also have Bibles back there if you need one of those uh, as we dig into God's word this morning. Colossians 1.13, the Apostle Paul says to the church of Colossae, for he has rescued us, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us or transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom in Christ in that son we have we are possessors of redemption the forgiveness of sins it says in Christ we are possessors of redemption a redeemed life we've been bought we've been redeemed from our former state. We've been forgiven in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We've been cleansed and changed and washed and restored, made holy, made a new creation. This is why many of the pastors of the New Testament speak of of salvation as new birth, a spiritual birth, a new identity, If you skip to chapter 2 of Colossians and look there also at verse 13 and 14, Paul continues when he says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Our certificate of death that our sin earns us, condemnation, God's righteous wrath upon wicked, undeserving sinners. We earn death. But for those Christ saves, he nails that certificate of death to the cross. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, of his forgiving work. It says he forgave us all our sins, past, present, future. 
If you are alive in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are forgiven. Our gospel testimony, if it's going to have any weight, has to sit on this reality. If you have not understood your standing before a holy God in Christ, then your testimony, everything that comes after, your own application of forgiveness and life will be not correct. You have to know you are forgiven. You don't need to go to God again and again and ask for forgiveness. That's to not understand that you are forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. If you are in Christ, the old is gone. The new has come. You've been reborn in Christ. This is truly good news. Your new identity in Christ means you are forgiven. Now, What makes this hard for us is two things. Some will wrongfully elevate certain sin that they've done in their past and go, there's no way God forgives me for this. I've had people tell me that over the years. If I I told you what I did, you'd leave my presence. What I've done is too wicked. It's too gross. It's, it's, It's unspeakable. And I would say, while that might be very true, the depth of the wickedness of whatever it is you've done or been part of, to declare that it's too wicked or that it's, it's unforgivable is to declare that then God has limitations on himself. That the blood of Jesus then is insufficient to cover your worst sin. And while you, that sin that you're speaking of or thinking of might be very dark, that's not who my God is. That's not who God is. God is able, more than able. So you must think rightly about who God is and his power and his spoken word to declare that the worst of the worst of the worst in Christ are forgiven. The other way we struggle with this reality of really embracing and understanding this is that uh, for the reality and remainder of our lives on earth, we're still at war with sin. Galatians speaks of it this way, that the work of the flesh is at war with the, with the fruit of the Spirit. That, but, but that war, I declare, is a good thing. Why? Because dead men don't struggle. If the Holy Spirit's not in you, then there's not struggle. Then you just sin. Everything you do is sin. But when the Holy Spirit's present and there's real struggle, real conviction before God, that's that sign of that battle that's happening. And it's an ongoing thing. Until glory, we will be at, at war. There's a daily fight to be fighting our sin, to be killing sin, to, to be desperate for Jesus and his redemption and be turning from sin and, and living out of the life of the gospel. It's real. Okay, the fight against sin is real. We will mess up. We will sin. The question is, when we do, what do we do with that sin? How do we think about it and understand it? I want you to understand that if and when you do sin, if you are truly in Christ, right away I want you to know you are forgiven. You know, forgiveness is not given out on the installment plan. You don't have to run to God and then get that, get that added to your tally. No, when he died for you, 
his elect, his redeemed, his, his blood-bought family. He died for your past, present, and future sins. You are forgiven. So then what do I do with my sin, Pastor? When that happens, there's three things you need to do as a Christian. Number one, you need to confess it, the scriptures say. You need to confess that sin. Here's what confession is. Confession is agreeing with God that it's sin. God, I'm not trying to put a mask on this. I'm not trying to call it something it's not. You call this sin, and now I'm calling it sin. And I'm declaring this is what I did. I'm confessing it. Okay? And confession is really important because you're not going to turn from it until you identify that this doesn't honor God. So we need to confess it. The second thing we need to do is we need to repent. Confession is a part of repentance. But it's, it's, it's not repentance. Repentance is turning from the sin to honor God. Repentance, think of it this way, is a new course or a new path in light of the gospel. So you see the sin, you identify that's what it is, and repentance is the action of turning and taking up a new course in light of that that sin, in light of the gospel. It is the motion and the movement of mind and thoughts and deeds of honoring God. You were dishonoring God or you did dishonor God. Repentance is now I'm going to honor God with what's ahead. So we confess it and we repent from it. And then I want you to thank God that you are forgiven. To tell him that. To stand in that salvation the proper and biblical way. Lord, thank you that I am forgiven. And it's essential that you continue to understand who you are in Christ so that the gospel doesn't become something that you turn it into. (laughs) But it is what it is. It is what God's declared it to be. You are forgiven. The motivation of of that gospel at work in your life, the conviction of now how God sees you, and, and the love he has for you and who you are in him is the motivation to turn from sin and go forth. Okay? This is why... In another sermon, in another passages, the, the scriptures speak of, of discipline for those who, who refuse to practice repentance. Because what they're doing is claiming Christ, but then giving false testimony of one who's not living out the power of God and the reality of the gospel. And so to, to continue to partner with that would be to endorse false testimony. So there's actual, there's actual uh, separation that even can come with someone who doesn't practice repentance. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you will confess sin and repent. Now, here's the thing. We're going to still struggle with sin. We're not perfect. This side of glory, we're still going to fight. We're still going to fall down. We're still have seasons where we need to be held up and embraced and, and walked with. And man, that is the beautiful journey of being the church. Turn with me one more chapter. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another as if, as one has a complaint against you, if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive so the instruction of paul now moves into a a practice for the believers to put on to get dressed daily in this new identity in christ and he talks about the different facets of what that looks like that you'll have 
compassionate hearts, you'll be kind to one another, humble. And one of those key aspects is that we would forgive. We would practice forgiving others because we have been forgiven by God. I want to make sure you understand this tonight because the motivation and the application of forgiving others, yourself, is out of the overflow of understanding you are forgiven in Christ. Most relational breakdowns are related to some form of a hurt. Something happened or was said or something didn't happen that has both parties, or at least one, upset and hurt. And so we've got to start there. If we're really going to understand the practice of forgiveness, we need to really start real quickly and understand what is a hurt. A hurt or an offense is a missed expectation. It's just that simple. Your expectation was here, and the person delivered here, under your expectation, the depth or the, the the depth of the miss is the depth of the hurt or the offense. Okay. Realize this though: for someone to hurt you, sometimes they didn't do anything. Because your hurt can and often can be the result of a misplaced expectation or an unhealthy expectation of another. See, in our struggle with sin, we can look to each other to play a role they're never intended to play, which is as some form of functional savior. Only one can ever fill that role in your life, only Jesus. So sometimes our expectation for each other can get really skewed as we look to others to really be our savior and play that role, and that creates really foul expectations. Another way this messes us up is is the sin of the fear of man. Fear of man makes us worship or hold too high the opinions of mankind, of others, parents, spouses, friends, kids, family, co-workers, by which then we create expectations that are too lofty and are constantly being missed. Uh, Let me give you an example. Let's say that you invite some friends to a dinner party, a fancy dinner party that you've been planning for months you got a lot of high hopes for this time. And one of those friends comes dressed all too casual, in your opinion, for this event that you've put together. Now, you're hurt because that person didn't live up to your planning and your expectation to have them be dressed up more. The question is, did that person do anything wrong or did they sin in any way? And outside of some extra circumstances, the quick answer is no. It's not like they showed up to your party naked. That would be clearly a sin and an offense and something you should be really bothered by, right? A whole other issue there. No, they came dressed for a party. They just didn't come dressed the way you wanted them to be. But there's a hurt there now. A missed expectation. And that's all it takes. If I'm talking to a random guy on the street corner while we're waiting to cross the street and we engage in a little bit of dialogue, and he says something offensive about something I love, is our relationship in great peril? And the answer is no. Why? Because I have very low expectations for the dude on the street that I don't even know, right? I, I don't, 
I don't love him, you know, care for him in such a way where he says this thing and I'm just so offended. It'd be way different if my wife, who I love and care for, says this grossly offensive thing about something I love. Why? Because my expectation of my wife is much higher than the random guy in the street. If I'm really hurt by the guy in the street and his words, it likely means that I've placed some form of an expectation too high. And I say this because often, we've got to start here, a lot of our hurts that need to be dealt with are the byproduct, not of someone else's doing, but is really the byproduct of a misplaced expectation. And we need to be good at adjusting those and understanding where those should rightly be. Now, they also can be the byproduct of a very rightly placed expectation. For example, you expect your father not to hit you in the face when he's mad at you. Why? Because a loving father doesn't beat his children. You expect your spouse not to have sexual intimacy with someone other than you. Why? Because that's not something a faithful, committed spouse does. So those are right-placed expectations and when right-placed expectations are not met, there's real hurt or offense that happens, missed expectation that now has that relationship or person in a state of conflict. So the question is, when that hurt happens, what do you do with it? And, and we got to go here because we often go to, there's really one of three things that I see in a lot of almost 20 years of pastoral ministry and a lot of counseling, a lot of time with people preaching of the word. I see one of three major things that we do with our hurt. And I want to use a, a visual illustration today in, in the yellow softball. And I want you not to see this for the sake of illustration as a softball. I want you to picture this as a grenade. And the reason why it's not a real grenade is because I'm not trained to handle a real grenade. And that's for all of our good that I didn't bring a live real grenade into the room today. So, we're all happy about the softball. Are you with me? This, the, the softball, the grenade, represents the hurt. This is the debt that someone created in missing the expectation. It is, in some ways, your earned right to get even. A debt has been created against you, and now you possess that. Okay? The debt, a withdrawal has been made against your will. Okay? Now, the first thing that you must understand is who is the possessor of the hurt, of the debt? You've got to understand that you are. The debt, the hurt, is in your possession. Now, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Some, in our sin, respond very fleshly, and we pull the pin on the grenade or the hurt or the debt, and we chuck it back at the person. We do this through getting loud or getting angry or cussing or doing something to get back at them. We somehow in our flesh feel like that's going to vindicate us and make everything right. The problem is, what does that do to the relationship? It makes everything worse, right? Because now I'm coming at you in sin, in hardship, in offense, and things just get worse. Most people learn that that's not the best way to handle this. Some of us are prone to go here more often than we should. So if not that, if not pulling the pin and chucking it back at the person or doing something to get back at them, what? 
And this is what a lot of people often will do is they'll say, because I want to go about with my life and not be focused on this forever, I'm just going to try to put it away. I'm going to try to ignore it and move on. And so you bury it. Now, who's the possessor of it still? You still are. Here's the other problem. If that's your way of handling hurts or offenses against you, the reality is you don't just have one. Often you have many that you are trying to handle and navigate. Moving from one to four alone, I have a big bag of them. I'm I'm not really a juggler, so I'm not going to try to take this too far. But even in just holding four of them, in the next moments, my back will begin to ache. Why? Because to keep them from falling, I'm having to posture my spine a little bit this way. I'm having to keep enough pressure here. I'm going to begin to feel it on the side of my ribcage. And so for many people, the reality is, this is why many people in daily life are angry or frustrated or grumpy because they're trying to keep all this together and not send a safe face, not let people know they're dealing with all this baggage. I've had people come in for counseling and say, my marriage is great, I love my kids, I love my job, I'm healthy, and yet I am angry. Why? And we have to mine down into that person's life, and what we find sometimes is stuff that's connected way back to childhood, stuff like this they've been carrying that's finally finding its way out in just everyday life. Here's the other reality of this. Imagine my other arm is full of these as well. I'm doing my best to put on a happy face and do my best to work hard and be a good person. But if I want to have a relationship with you as a brother or sister in Christ or as a spouse or a father or whatever, I go, come here, give me a hug. Come on. And this is my emotional availability or what I can offer you in our relationship. No wonder why for a lot of people they're very limited in where they go, what they do. So this is not a healthy answer. The other thing that you've got to really realize is sometimes we hold on to these things because we feel like I've got to protect myself so that if you ever come around again or if you go ever go there again, I can pull this out and go, hey, remember this? Yeah, yeah, I still have this. So you better not go there again. Remember, the problem is we kind of think that that's helpful in keeping those things in right boundary and check. But here's the reality. Who is this affecting more than anyone else? Me. I'm weighed by it. I'm soured by it. Life is hard and miserable. This is not the right answer for our hurts and our offenses. It's just to bury it and try to hold on to it and just go about life. The Bible's very clear that when someone sins against you, not to bury it, but to go to them, to go to them right away, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Matthew 5, 23 through 24, so if you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God's priority for forgiveness in our lives, for reconciling our lives, is so central. He says, stop what you're doing at the altar to worship me and go get right. That's how high this is in God's economy. How can you restore a relationship, though, with a person if you still hold debt, the debt of their sin, if you hold that misstep over their head? 
or if you know that they have hurt against you, the, the answer is you don't. You don't have real restoration with them. It's not healthy. In order for reconciliation in your broken relationship to happen, there first must be forgiveness. See, option one is pull the pin, create more hurt. We get crazy on each other. Option two is that really doesn't get us anywhere. I'll just bury it. I'll try to go about my life. That doesn't work. Option three is you forgive the debt. Forgiveness is giving up your right to get even. You no longer hold the debt against them. You have forgiven it. Before we talk about what forgiveness is, let me take a quick minute and talk about what forgiveness is not because a lot of people have a very misconstrued view of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not, number one, fair. Okay, Life is not fair. I said this very boldly recently. The best thing in this life is the gospel. The gospel isn't even fair. What we deserve and earn We're not given. We're given a prize that we do not deserve, a gift that we could never dream of from a holy God that was unobligated to give it. God, holy God, taking on flesh, enduring all of our human struggles in perfection without sin, only then to willingly substitute himself to give us his righteousness and take on our condemnation in our place to pay our debt so that we could have eternal life with the holy God is the gospel. It's amazing. It's not fair. Fair is for people who are trying to earn their way through life. Religious people get caught up in fair. I deserve this. You don't deserve that. Forgiveness is not fair. Number two, forgiveness is not approving or diminishing sin. It's not saying, oh, well, that, that's okay. It's not really a big deal. No, it's a big deal. When someone sins, when someone creates a, a legit offense, that, that's a big deal. That even our smallest sins are big enough that God in flesh died to pay for them. So we don't call it not a big deal. We, we don't say it's not, it, oh, that's fine. No, it's not fine. It's, it's real. We don't diminish sin. We don't dishonor the cross of Jesus and approve or diminish something that required the death of God for restoration. Forgiveness is not approving or diminishing sin. Number three, forgiveness is not ignoring sin. Some choose to see forgiveness as weak, as a cop-out. No, I don't really do forgiveness. That's weak. You have a friend or a family member who's maybe an addict, for example. You can forgive them without enabling them. Forgiveness is not enabling. Forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. Saying things like, oh, it just it didn't happen. We just forget about it. We just move on. That's not true forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's way of helping us deal with sin. God has given you and I a tool that is forgiveness that we didn't have before. We know the forgiveness of God and salvation and we get to wield it in a God-honoring way. Forgiveness says we both know that what happened is wrong. It's without excuse. I'm not trying to belittle that. But since God in his glory has forgiven me, I extend that forgiveness and I forgive you. 
you owe me nothing. Number four, forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. Sometimes we can say, hey, I'll forgive them as soon as they say they're sorry. I hate to break it to you, but some people are never going to apologize. Some people are going to continue in their destructive, rebellious, and foolish life course. Some people will be stubborn and religious and self-righteous and will never confess or admit what they did. Some people will move away and you'll never speak to them again. Some people will die before they ever got to admit that what they did was wrong. Church, you don't make people earn forgiveness. It's an oxymoron. Forgiveness is a gift. You don't earn a gift. It's given as an act of love. It's God's love at work in and through us. Number five, forgiveness is not forgetting. This is one of the big Christian myths. Well, we forgive and forget. Well, sometimes, by God's grace, you will forget. I love it. I love it when God does that. You have a season by which you remember with great detail gross things that you did or were a part of, and then years later with healing and life and sanctification, you think back on that thing, you're like, I know it happened, but I just don't remember. Or you might even not even remember it ever happened. So by God's grace, sometimes that is the case that you do get to forget. But forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting Don't think forgiveness is simply choosing to forget. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is an active process, a conscious choice, a deliberate course of action. If you were raped, if you were molested, if you were beaten, if you were abused, if you were cheated on, if you were betrayed, if you were lied about, many times you don't forget it. But you can, in God's power, be healed from it. Forgiveness opens up a beautiful doorway for healing. The wound that's between you and this hurt will never heal until you take the first step of forgiving the debt so that then the healing can begin. And God can and does this in the most amazing ways. It's a joy to walk and talk with people who have forgiven and experienced great restoration and healing in Christ and are even able to talk about a rape or a great wicked thing that they did or were a part of something by which before they could never admit ever happened. It was so gross. It was such a big part of their identity still. But now their identity in Christ, who they are in Christ is so restored and built up that yeah, it happened, but it doesn't define me anymore. I can talk about it. It doesn't undo me anymore because I'm caught up in Christ, no longer caught up in it and its demise. Hey, uh, a, a quick and, and silly analogy is is uh, one day when Jennifer and I were seeing each other before we were married, We I lived with uh, three other Christian brothers. We had a, a house, and we were all professionals at the time, so we could afford a house, and it was fun. We had 
our Christian friends over a lot, and people would constantly come over on the weekend. And so one night we had the the games were on, and people were out in the garage, and we're hanging out. And I was making smoothies. I was making smoothies. I wasn't making something else on this night. They were legitimately smoothies. And that will make sense in a moment because I'm washing my hands and all of a sudden I reach over and, and, or I look over and I see that the blender cup, the smoothie, full cup of smoothie is just chock full. I made great smoothies. And, uh, and, and it's wiggling. And so I'm thinking, oh, I didn't put the base into the blender well. And so it's about to pop out and I don't want to lose all my good smoothie, right? And so I go to grab it. Well, it's not the whole cup. It was the, you know, in a blender cup, it's actually two pieces. It's, it's, the, it's the cup that's grounded by the blade base that the blades are in, and then that sits in the mechanism, the machinery. What was wiggling was the glass coming out of the blades. I didn't know that. So in perfect secret uh, harmony, as the cup pops off, my hand goes into the brand new four-pronged blender blades at full speed, and it just hollows my hand out. I immediately put pressure on it and go to the sink. I go, yeah, this is really bad. And I go to look at it, and it squirts blood. That's really bad, okay? So um, I told my guys, and they acted like some kind of trained EMT crew. They threw me in the truck and got my phone and called Jen and took me to a, uh, uh, an urgent care. And I walked in, and the guy and the guy says, let me see it. And I opened it up. I had such good pressure on it, I had stopped all the bleeding. So at that point, my hand was all opened up. I could see all my blue muscle tissue in my hand. It was crazy. And that guy looked at it and said, yeah, we can do nothing for you here. This is an urgent care. I, I like can give you a Band-Aid, right? And so, um, so then they had to drive me across town. And thankfully, they ran me uh, into the double doors where the EMTs come in, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't go into the waiting room for the emergency room. We went in where the EMTs go in. Thereby, my entourage is met with an entourage of EMTs, and they take me right into a room, which was rad. Because if I went into the waiting room, I would have had to sit there like this for three hours waiting for my turn, right? So I'm being cared for. Jennifer shows up. I knew she was just a strong amazing woman because she could watch and I couldn't. I'm like looking away. She watched him stitch all my muscle tissue together. So uh, now what I have is a number of very gnarly scars. 30 stitches later, they put my hand back together. Thankfully, it didn't get any of my tendons and everything works. For two months, I had to wear a brace because if I bent my wrist, I would have snapped all that open and it had to heal. For many months after that, if I even just touched it, it would be very sensitive. But now, if I wanted to take a karate class and start to break things, I could, not to say that I have any skill in that, but it's all healed now. It's strong. It's solid. There's the, the scars are there. I remember what happened, but I'm healed. I'm not defined. I'm not inhibited by it anymore. Do you see the imagery? You can be healed in the power of God. The scar might be there. The reality that it happened might be there. You can see it and experience it in a completely new way in the power of God. One other little funny part of the story, completely no redemptive value, but it's hilarious, is my good friend, when all the people came over for our party, they was taking him in the kitchen. Hey, Josh is at the ER. He got his hand in the blender. Like, what? And so he told him, and he pulled out this little baggie with, with flesh tissue and blood in this baggie. He's like freaking everyone else out. I got home later. I heard that story. And what's funny, he said, come here, look. And it wasn't any part of my hand. He took ham and he kind of like chonked it up and he put barbecue sauce in it. I always thought that was really funny. Again, no redemptive value, but. You can be healed of it. Praise God. Praise God that he can do a marvelous work. We've got to forgive 
for this wound to begin to really heal, for God to do his work, and that we continue to hold on to this, and it festers. That wound never heals. Number six, forgiveness is not neglecting justice. You can forgive someone and still call the police and have them arrested. You can forgive someone and testify to the truth of what happened in court. Romans 13 says we are to obey the government. The reality is your forgiveness of them for whatever they did is real and right. but That doesn't necessarily mean there's still not horizontal consequences for some of the things that we do. Sometimes people want to say, oh, but, but you said you forgave me, so why then did you still call the cops? Well, because you broke the law, and they're going to handle that part with you. That's not on me. I forgive you. But also, if I'm asked to testify in court, I'll be honest, too, about what happened. Because I'm in Christ, and I'm a truth teller. So sometimes people will say, oh, well, forgiveness, I'm commanded to forgive. That means then we don't, we don't follow the law. And I go, yeah, you still have to follow the law. We still honor God in that. Forgiveness is not neglecting justice. Forgiveness is not trusting. It's two different things. Some people don't obey God's command to forgive because they can't trust the person again. Family member abuses one of your children physically, sexually. In Christ, you are to forgive them. But that doesn't mean you invite them over two weeks later to watch your kids again. There are certain aspects of certain relationships by which trust will, will change or have to be earned back. Forgiveness should be immediate. We should forgive them. We should not hold on to their sin and, and somehow act as the judge and the justice ourselves. We should forgive them. We should extend what we've been given. But trust has to be rebuilt. Uh, you, you, you end up endorsing people's sin to give them full reign to continue to do the sin. The woman who says, my boyfriend beat me black and blue, and, and you know, he apologized, and I, I forgive him. I truly do. Do I keep dating him? No. no there's, there's a problem here that needs to be adjusted. You should have distance. There. There's a, a line that was crossed that restoration work, life change needs to happen. And one of the ways we illustrate this is, you know, if... Um, if Darren here borrows my car and needs to get to work and he goes and decides to try to race a teenager in a hot rod and then he wraps my car around a tree being stupid, comes back and says, bro, I, I'm, I did dumb. I told your car. Uh, I have no money to pay for it. Will you forgive me? And I say, yeah, that's really dumb. Um, I do forgive you. That's what insurance is for. And thankfully we can be good. And, and I love you. And you know, hopefully it won't happen again. And great, forgive you. And he's like, wow, that's awesome. And then he calls me the next day and says, hey, I, I need to get to work today. Can I borrow your other car? I'd be a fool at that moment to say, yeah, yeah, here's my other car. But because I love him, he's my brother. I still want to bless him. He's still, I want to help him. I want to be sacrificial and honor him. So I might call him a cab or I might, I might just take him to work. Maybe we get to a place where I trust him with my $40 skateboard. And then if he brings that back in good shape, then we've built trust and I can, I can then loan him my $80 bicycle. And then if he brings that in good shape, I can trust him with my motor. No, no we'll skip that. I'll trust him with. <laughs> the point is, is one day he can, he can rebuild that trust. And maybe then one day you see Darren out driving my car again. And he's like, hey, that's cool. Like you see that restoration and that trust was rebuilt. 
does forgiveness get attached to that? And the answer is no. Forgiveness is different than trusting. We need to forgive. We're commanded to not hold each other's sin over each other. But trusting in how that relationship is rebuilt or how it should go is another layer of the journey. The point is, is that you don't withhold forgiveness because you can't trust the person in that moment. True love never aids another to sin. And so for some, the offender still is struggling in whatever that thing is. So forgiveness needs to happen, but, but we need to walk with them with some parameters and some help, some guidelines by which you're not manipulated to participate in their sin in an ongoing way. Forgiveness doesn't mean you become a helpless, passive doormat for someone to continue to sin. You forgive, but trust and relationship parameters have accountability that is worked on. By the grace of God, I, I know men who were abusers get whole. I, I know people who uh, abused a family member's child. I've, I've seen forgiveness happen. I've seen them share dinner together again. Again, does that person, are they given the trust of the kids alone? No, but I've seen amazing restoration, ongoing, lifelong, real redemption happen. And God is good and he's able to do great things power of forgiveness and what he's doing in and through us, God is able. Forgiveness is opening that door to, to really trust again. And then forgiveness is, what we have to understand lastly, is forgiveness is not reconciliation. It takes one person to repent. It only takes one person to forgive because your forgiveness is not dependent on their actions. You are the possessor of the debt. It doesn't require them to do something for you to forgive them. But it does take two people to reconcile. So we are to do our part in forgiveness, but the reality is you have to understand that it still takes that other person for reconciliation to happen. It's the first step to reconciliation. We don't wait to do this for reconciliation. We initiate reconciliation with forgiveness. You start there. We start with forgiveness. What are some of the evidences that you have not forgiven? Sometimes people think, oh, I thought I forgave him, but then it came back into view. Four key things you can look for. I'll mention one another in a little bit. For some, you think you forgave someone, but you really didn't. And, and one of the signs of that is you're constantly stuck in the past, constantly going back and reliving that stuff again and again. Another evidence is that you're experiencing real isolation. A lot of times when people are really carrying a lot of weight and they haven't really forgiven, they, 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 they turn in, they, they remove themselves from others. Another sign that you haven't really forgiven is that you're emotionally just a wreck. You're all over the place. Um, and then sometimes you give control to those who hurt you. So these are things to watch for. Because we can be guilty of thinking we forgave someone, but what we really did was kind of put some scotch tape around it, and then we like hold on to its tether. Like, oh yeah, I forgave you. And then they do something, and you're like, oh no, and you grab it like, no, no, I still have it. So we have to be really, when we truly give up our right to even and forgive the debt, it's gone, it's done. So here's the big question. Where do you find the power to forgive? Where do you find the power to forgive? How do you and I forgive someone who does not deserve to be forgiven? By what power do we do this? 
people have sat with me and go, what this person's done, what's happened here is unimaginable. I'm commanded by God. I've received for unimaginable forgiveness. How do I, how do I forgive this person? We're instructed clearly in scriptures. Colossians 3.13, we read a little while ago, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You must, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4.32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the reality. God did not wait for us to say, I'm sorry. He didn't wait for us to get our lives together. He did not wait for us to come running to him so we could prove that we're worthy of forgiveness. We were actively his enemy, actively continuing to sin against him when he forgave us in Christ. Romans 5, 11 through 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were sinners, actively sinning, active enemies of God. When you consider someone, you go, how do they deserve this? You have to slow down and see the holy, perfect, glorious God forgave my miserable sin. That the gap of offense, the level of offense of my sin before a holy God is a hundred times worse than anything man might do to man. When you rightly understand God's perfection and who we are in sin, you understand that gap rightly. Problem is sometimes we we de-elevate God, we elevate man, so that then in our sins to each other, man to man, we somehow see as greater. It's an incorrect view of the gospel. We have been given the power to forgive in the gospel. You have to have a right view and understanding of what God has done for you. And in that gospel view, you then are empowered and motivated to extend that forgiveness to others who do not deserve it. The only hope to forgive someone who does not deserve it is the power of the gospel. It starts with Jesus. In that, the gospel then is not just about my salvation. It's about a movement. It's about God's work to restore and reconcile. It's a, it's a testimony of what God has done, the testimony that moves through us, that when maybe sometimes someone comes to knock on your door to say, man, will you forgive me? You get to look and say, I already have. How? Because here's what God did for me. What a powerful testimony. Counseled with, with men who have gone 30 years, can't forgive their dad or their brother, something crazy that happened, and, and, and finally get it in the gospel, finally forgive them. I go, what would it be like if one day he knocked on your door and, you, and fell on his knees? You're like, no, no brother, it's, I already forgave you. The power of the gospel testimony, and that's so amazing. It's a good news that must be shared. If a wretched, wicked enemy of God is defined by my practice of sin against him has received the gift that we've received that we don't deserve in the slightest, if that man can be forgiven, then surely my neighbor, my sister, my mother, my daughter, 
and even my enemy can be forgiven. We are forgiven to forgive. The gospel at work in our lives means the power to forgive. It means restoration of relationships and renewal. What if they don't deserve it? But, but pastor, don't deserve it. And here's the point. They don't deserve it. Get over it. They don't deserve it. They, they hurt you. They offended you. They did something wrong. That doesn't earn gifts. They deserve punishment. But that's the beauty of the gospel at work in and through us to forgive something they don't deserve. Extending what God has given us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When you look at the church forgiving one another, do you see it? Do you see what God is doing through the gospel? The gospel is not just about getting dead people saved. It is that, but it's also about his work of restoration, reconciliation for his glory. The gospel changing lives. So where is your participation in that? Who do you need to forgive? It doesn't start with talking. It starts with your heart. It starts with understanding that you are forgiven, understanding who you are in Christ, a right motivation by God to truly give up that debt and not think you did it, but to really do it. We've got to lay it down. We've got to give up that right. People will leave our church and break up with one another because they won't forgive. People will, will leave our church and break up with one another because they assume they won't be forgiven. Understand, hear from me. We are commanded to forgive. We will forgive. Forgiveness is the work of God's people. Hear me clearly. We are commanded to forgive others. If you don't, you are in sin. And you are showing evidence that Christ is not in you. If you're wrestling, don't stop wrestling. Wrestling's good. Pursue counseling. Get help. Pray. Do whatever it takes. If you've messed up, then confess it. Repent of it. Know that God's family, his true family, will forgive you. I will make sure of it. We will make sure of it. We will follow God's word and honor him in these things. You need to count on that. The enemy wants to divide. The enemy wants to separate. We don't submit to the enemy. We submit to God. And before we close... Some people will get hung up in saying, but if I forgive, where's the justice? Some people are feeling like, I can't forgive because I got to keep, I got to make sure justice happens. Justice, my friends, comes ultimately from God. When you and I forgive, we hand the grenade, the hurt, to God. And then he either pulls the pin 
if that person's saved and it's part of what Christ endured, justice happens. The sin is paid for. It doesn't go unpaid for. So either Christ takes it on in the cross or that pen gets pulled and it's part of someone's eternal condemnation and wrath in hell. Justice, my friends, will happen for every sin. Every sin. The one who is most just is just. And assures us that he will be. Romans twelve nineteen. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So in forgiving someone, we're not neglecting justice. We're leaving it to the perfect judge to enact his perfect justice. Amen? The gospel or righteous wrath. How do you know you forgave someone? How, that you truly gave up that hurt? That you're not still holding on to it? The way you really test that I've found over the years is that when you're reminded of the person or you see the scar or whatever happens, those things that used to come with it, that resentment, that, that implosion, that anger, whatever, that bitterness isn't there. Maybe, if anything, there's just a general sadness that that ever happened. You know what happened. You're like, hey, it's, it's a bummer that happened. But you don't, you don't own it anymore. That's a sign that you've really forgiven that person. The healing has begun. You give it to God, and you begin to heal. You give it to God, and the relationship's given room to begin to restore. And we don't have to hang it over each other's head. So my question this morning is, will you participate in the kingdom practice of forgiveness? So that you are not weighted down by these hurts, so that you honor God and his command, and what he's done in us in the gospel is meant to go through us to others. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Peter came up and said to the Lord, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven I had the privilege of performing the marriage of uh, Jonathan and Lauren Enns, members of our church, young couple, last night. And uh, in the wedding vows that I do in all my weddings, the, one of the critical vows that a couple commits to each other in their vows is slow to anger and quick to forgive. Why? Because any relationship that's going to last until death to us part, any relationship that's going to endure through the ups and downs of life must be good at practicing forgiveness. So people will say, what if you choose not to forgive? Jesus says in Matthew 6, following the Lord's prayer, that those who forgive others have the Father's forgiveness, and those who don't forgive others do not have the Father's forgiveness. So some have asked, if I do not forgive, is God not going to forgive me? Your soteriology must be corrected in that thinking. Forgiveness is not a work 
by which we earn God's forgiveness. That's a faulty way of thinking about your redemption. By no work of man do we earn God's saving grace. That's always applicable. We must apply that rightly to every circumstance. The practice of forgiveness, therefore, is an evidence of a man who received the ultimate forgiveness. Forgiveness flows from a heart satisfied with the mercy of God and rejoicing in the cancellation of your own debt by God. It's the fruit of the Spirit that lives in the redeemed. The command on the redeemed is simple. We are to forgive, not once, but 70 times 7. In other words, we are to forgive. If we choose to not practice forgiveness, we show that we do not understand, number one, what we have been given by God in Christ. And potentially that we do not have what Christ gave in salvation. It's an evidence of maybe where you're not with the Lord. So I say, you do not earn your salvation with forgiveness. You do not earn God's forgiveness with forgiveness. But it is an evidence of the truly saved. So we take to heart the weighty reality of this command. We don't put it away. We lean in. For those of you who are struggling with lifelong stuff, it's time to go to work. It's time to do business with these things. For those of you who have been putting off some of these things, it's time to really go to the Lord. I ask you this morning, what hurts are you still holding on to? What missed expectations do you need to forgive? In what ways do you still need to forgive yourself? Maybe your parents, a spouse, a friend, a church member, your kids. One of the main evidences of your identity being in Christ is that you are not a keeper of other people's sin. Brothers and sisters, we must participate in Christ's redemptive work and be quick to forgive and fight for unity and fight for, for one another. In this, God is glorified and we are blessed. Amen? Practicing forgiveness is one of the greatest and most important works we do in the gospel being manifest and how we share it and model it for others. It is such a huge part of our testimony as Disciples Church and what God has before us in the season and years to come. So let us steward these things well and steward them rightly. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this, this time you've given us. I thank you for the work that you're doing in our church, for the opportunities you're giving us to do business with these most central things. We begin by just saying again how grateful we are for your grace that you forgave us when we did not deserve it. You did something we could never fathom as whoever even asked for. Father, I pray that for many in the room today, that's where they must start. For some in the room, they must start by being forgiven, by confessing their sin and trusting their lives to Christ, that they would be redeemed, that they would be a part of your family, that they would be forgiven. And for those who have trusted their lives to Jesus, that they would not walk in lies or mistruths, that they would not think that somehow they're not forgiven, that they are. And that that would shape their lives, it would motivate their lives, they would live out of the gospel rightly. And that when faced with real offenses or hurts or missteps in our own lives or by others, we would we'd confess, we would repent, we'd thank you for forgiveness. And, and for those that we need to forgive, we would forgive them. 
not hold that debt against them. We not look for man-made ways to try to protect ourselves or to vindicate ourselves. We would, we would run to you, our God. We would let the gospel move and manifest itself in our lives. Some, sometimes churches get caught up in, in saying, hey, what can we do to love the city, to see the gospel move in the city? Lord, I pray that Disciples Church would just be really good at practicing forgiveness. And then that wave of reconciliation, restoration, gospel renewal would take place in this city, in our own lives, in our families. When people want to say, wow, look at how awesome that is that you did that, we're going to say, no, no, not me. Look at God. Look at what God did in me. That's God's work. Praise and glory be to God. Lord, I'm excited about the, the healing and the restoration and the work that you're going to do through each of our people. Every one of us in the room has got a facet of today that we have to do business with, and I pray that we would do it. I pray we would not be hearers only, but doers. We have homework. We'd have real business to do this week with you in prayer, with ourselves, with, with our groups, our pastors, whoever. I'm excited to see what you're going to do in and through us, God. We come to the fount blessing we we acknowledge our sin our struggle and we're desperate for you lord move mightily in us in jesus name amen let's stand together and sing one last song and then we